Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, I know many of you stayed up to watch the Braves last night, but that's no excuse for falling asleep today, <laughs> despite the temptation to do so. I do have one announcement I want to, uh, to mention this morning. I want to remind you that this coming Saturday, October 30th, we're going to host our first fall festival uh, now, we've done our trunk or treat in the past, and, and that will be part of the fall festival, but, but this Saturday we're going to be meeting from 3 to 6 p.m. We're going to have games and activities for kids. We are also using this as an opportunity to connect with members of our community, inviting uh, various individuals and, and groups to come and, and be a part of this. We want it to be a way that we can connect with our community and uh, and introduce families to our congregation. So please plan on coming out and being a part of this. Uh, 3 to 6 on Saturday, October 30th, with a lot of activities. And as an extra incentive, I want you to be fully aware that there's going to be a dunk tank here. And Ben Hogan is going to be in that dunk tank. I plan on being first in line. <laughs> now, we do have several individuals who plan on being in it. Weather permitting, I'll be in it, but I'm not guaranteeing that because I'm not risking getting sick before I've got to preach on Sunday morning. But I might be in it as well. So if you ever wanted to dunk one of your ministers in a dunk tank, Saturday's your opportunity. Come out and, and uh, uh, enjoy that if you want to. With that being said, I want to tell you about an artist who had put some of his paintings in a gallery, and he went to visit the gallery owner and ask if his paintings were drawing any interest from anybody, if there was anybody who wanted to buy his work. And the, the gallery owner told the artist that he had some good news and he had some bad news. The good news was that there has been an individual who has expressed extraordinary interest in his work and asked if the asked the gallery owner if he thought the value of those paintings would appreciate after the artist passed away and the gallery owner told the uh, interested buyer that indeed he thought they would and so that buyer purchased all of that man's artwork and the artist said well that's fantastic what's the bad news and the gallery owner replied, well, the bad news is that guy was your doctor. Now, I know that's not the best joke in the world, but I tell it because a good news, bad news story like that reminds me of where we're at in the book of Acts. Because here we are in this wonderful historical account of the church, but it's a very real account of the church. And because it's very real, it consists of both good news and bad news. You can journey through these first five chapters that we've studied thus far, and there's a lot of good news. You'll notice back in Acts chapter 1 that the church starts with about 120 people in Acts chapter 1 verse 15. 
You keep reading, and by Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, you find out that about 3,000 had been added. You get over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, and that number has grown to about, to about 5,000. And eventually, you get into Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, and you find out that so many people were being added to the church that Luke just refers to them as multitudes. That's good news. But Acts also contains bad news. Bad news like the fact that there were individuals in the early church like Ananias. Individuals who acted selfishly, deceitfully, and arrogantly. And bad news, like the presence of persecution. You see, while the book of Acts depicts life in the kingdom of God as a blessed experience, it also presents life in the kingdom of God as a risky experience. Because it can potentially be filled with opposition and confrontation and persecution. And this morning, as we examine Acts chapter 4 and 5 a little bit more, we can't ignore the biblical reality it presents, and that is that persecution is a possibility in the life of the church. Now, we need to concede up front that persecution varies across time and across cultures. And so I want you to look closely with me at a text outside of Acts. I want you to venture back to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment before we dive into Acts. Because back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, toward the end of the Beatitudes, says something about persecution that we need to pay attention to. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First off, he pronounces a blessing on those who are persecuted. He speaks of it as though it is a gift, as though it is something beneficial. We'll circle back around to that before we conclude this sermon, but tuck it away in your mind for just a moment. The word that I want you to notice here is the word for persecution, because when Jesus spoke about it, he used a term that means to, that literally means to make someone run to make someone flee, to, make, to, to drive someone away. The idea that Jesus is conveying when he speaks about persecution here is the idea of physical abuse, of physical harm, of physical harassment. And such physical persecution was prevalent throughout the New Testament. It would take the form sometimes of imprisonment. You can read about uh, Peter being imprisoned in Acts chapter 12. You can read about Paul and Silas being imprisoned in Acts chapter 16. It would also take the form of beatings. We'll read in just a moment in Acts chapter 5 about how the apostles were beaten. But you can also uh, reference Paul's stoning in Acts chapter 14. And again, Paul and Silas, when they were imprisoned in Acts chapter 16, they were beaten with rods at that time as well. And of course, this physical persecution also took the form of execution at times. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. James was 
killed in Acts chapter 12, and we read about a man named Antipas in Revelation chapter 2. And while physical abuse is the most difficult form of persecution, it's not the only form of persecution. It's certainly not a form of persecution that we in the United States have had much experience with. I want you to notice what Jesus said in the very next verse of Matthew chapter 5. Immediately after we read that beatitude in verse 10, he says this in verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In Luke's account of this same beatitude, which is recorded in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32, this is the way Luke said it. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. So when Jesus spoke about persecution... He specifically identified one form of it as physical persecution. But he also broadened the definition to include any type of suffering experience that may come from verbal abuse or societal abuse. Now, I'm not trying to say that an insult is as bad as an execution. I'm just trying to make us understand That persecution takes varying forms. And the persecution that our brothers have experienced in India is not going to look the same as the persecution we experience here. But that doesn't mean persecution doesn't happen here. And so as we consider our our lives as disciples in the context of our culture and our time, We need to be aware of the type of persecution we may be exposed to. And it's a type of persecution that even individuals in the first century experienced. The author of Hebrews wrote about the persecution of Christians in his day in in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And here's what he said. He said, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You see, persecution takes different forms. And we need to be cognizant of the suffering and the difficulty that our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. They're much more worse than what we experience here. But we need to be equipped to endure persecution here. And the type of persecution we may experience is this second type that Jesus referenced that may include verbal and societal abuse. And it's present in our society in a number of ways. It's present in the increase in, in the fact that our society is increasing the definition and application of Thomas Jefferson's statement regarding the separation of church and state so that Christianity is viewed as a danger to our civil institutions. Such persecution is, per, is evident in our society in the way that Christians are criticized for our stance on divorce and abortion and other matters of morality. It's evident in our society. Persecution is evident in our society when you see the accusations of intolerance and hatred that are thrown toward Christians because of their stance on homosexuality or women's roles in the church. 
And persecution is present in our society as evidenced by the way Christians are mocked for choosing to maintain their sexual purity. And which, regardless of which form persecution takes, we need to be prepared to respond to it accordingly. And that's where our study of Acts comes into play today. You see, in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have the first experience of persecution. And I want us to look at how the first century Christians responded to persecution so that we might respond in like manner. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, I'm not persecuted. We'll get around to that in a moment, too. But imagine that you were growing up like one of these teens over here today, experiencing the world through their eyes and through the uh, uh, agendas that are thrown at them inside the school every day. It may be from from the educational standpoint and the teaching on evolution or something like that. Or it may be through the peer pressure they experience from friends and, and, and classmates and teammates who have no appreciation of the church and of God's will whatsoever. Maybe you're not having to face it every day, but a lot of these guys are. And we need to help them, we need to equip them, and we need to be equipped ourselves to deal with that and to showcase to the next generation how we handle such things. So I turn your attention to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 to make three points. When persecution arose, I want you to notice first and foremost that the first century church prayed. Just two chapters after the institution of the church, persecution began. It started with the arrest and interrogation of Peter and John, which you can read about in the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 4. And the reason they were arrested is because they were teaching heresy in the minds of the Jewish leaders. They weren't teaching heresy. They were just proclaiming Christ. But to the Sanhedrin, to the high priest, to those officials of Judaism, that was heresy. And so they're brought in for questioning. And the end result was that the Jewish leaders ordered them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus or else. You can infer that or else from the fact that in verse 21 of Acts chapter 4, they were further threatened to not teach in the name of Jesus. Now what would you do under such circumstances? Imagine that you were just released from custody. You had been arrested for proclaiming Christ incarcerated through the night, interrogated the whole next day, and told that you better not talk about Jesus anymore or you would regret it. When you went home after that experience, what would be the first thing you'd do? See, we live in a country where certain rights are protected, where certain freedoms are are protected, and so we forget. 
or we never knew just how bad it can get for some Christians. So imagine you were Peter or imagine you were John. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to run in and grab your loved ones and, 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 and love on them for a little bit because you thought your life was almost over? Are you going to come up with a plan to avoid this kind of experience in the future? Are you, are you going to come up with a new tactic on, on how you might not get arrested again? Are you going to move? What's going to be your first response? Because the first response of Peter and John was to get the church together and pray. That was their first reaction to what they just went through. And before you start commending that response before you start going oh yeah that's what I would do you need to look at what they prayed for because what they prayed for may be very very different than what you think you would pray for in such circumstances so when the church got together after Peter and John were released from prison look at verse 29 this is what they prayed they said Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I think we'd all agree that praying about the situation is a fantastic first response and we'd hope that we would have the presence of mind to do the same. But would we pray for what they prayed for? just prayed for boldness. I imagine that if it was us there that day praying, we would have prayed we would have prayed for persecution to cease. We would have prayed for God's judgment to rain down on our persecutors. We would have prayed for protection from the authorities. We would have prayed for the hearts of the authorities to be changed. But none of those things factor into the prayer of Peter, John, and the first century church when they first experienced persecution. They didn't pray for one of those things. What they prayed for was the courage to keep speaking. It didn't matter to them if persecution came again tomorrow. It mattered whether or not they'd be bold enough to speak the truth in the face of persecution. And maybe their prayer is an indicator that our prayers are incomplete at best and incorrect at worst. Here's what I mean. When it comes to the subject of persecution, we tend to pray for our comfort instead of our commitment. We have a tendency to pray for freedoms to continue, for opposition to be removed, for protection to be provided. Those prayers are focused on maintaining our comfort. And maybe we need to spend more time praying for, for the ability and the opportunity to be bold. Because such boldness had a huge impact on the growth of the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. We're told that as a result of their prayer, which God answered, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
And then if you skip ahead into chapter 5 and you look at verses 12, 13, and 14, we're told that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. See, as the boldness of the church grew, so did its impact on the community around it. Maybe that should tell us something about what we pray for. I'm not saying you don't pray for our freedoms to persist. I'm not saying you don't pray for protection from persecution. I'm not saying you don't pray for opposition to cease. I'm not saying you don't pray for those things. I'm saying shouldn't we, in addition to those things, be praying for the ability to speak boldly and the opportunity to speak boldly because that's what's expected from our Lord. It's been said that one of the greatest threats to the church is a lack of persecution. Because where the church is threatened is where it tends to thrive. You see that in the first century and the years that followed as the church experienced persecution across the Roman Empire. And you can see it today in places like India. We're back in 2018, several members of the preaching school that we support over there through Mani Pagadapali were attacked. All because they proclaimed Christ. And if any of you are friends with Mani, our missionary in India on social media, you'll see how many people are being converted on a regular basis. Hundreds over the course of a weekend. It's okay to pray for protection. It's okay to pray for our freedoms to continue. Those things are okay to pray for, but let's not forget to pray for boldness. Because that's what they did in the first century. That's what also contributed to their phenomenal growth. Pray for boldness. But I also want you to notice that when persecution arose, the first century church obeyed. As we've already mentioned, the church's impact grew as, as it sought boldness in the face of persecution. And this aroused, if you look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 5, this growth aroused the jealousy of the high priest and other leading Jews. And so they orchestrated the arrest of all the apostles, not just Peter and John anymore, all the apostles. But an angel miraculously released them from prison. And if you look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 20, here's the instructions they received from the Lord's messenger that night. The angel said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
Now, I want you to think about that. All the apostles were arrested. They're spending their night in jail, and suddenly an angel shows up and releases them, but then tells them, hey, your job now, go back to that temple and start preaching again. There was not a more dangerous place for them to go in that moment than the temple. The temple was ground zero for religious activity, for community publicity, and more importantly, for the Sanhedrin's authority. So going there was definitely going to expose them to further criticism and greater potential punishment. Immediately returning to the temple after being miraculously released from prison, was like Daniel re-entering the lion's den after exiting it unscathed. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego returning into the furnace after being pulled out unharmed. And I imagine that if most of us were in the position of these apostles, we might want to lay low for a little while, let some of the heat die down on us. We may have told that angel that we don't think it was a good idea to go back to the temple just yet. Let's take a couple of days, let things cool off, and then we can go back to the temple. We might even think that, hey, we need to retreat for a moment. We need to regroup. It's just too hot and too dangerous right now to go back to the temple. But the apostles were concerned about one thing and one thing only. They were concerned about being obedient. And God, via his angel, had told them, it's time to get back into the fight. It's time to return to the temple. It's time to keep preaching. Despite what's happened to you and despite the risk, it's time to keep going. And there to obedience becomes extraordinarily evident in this chapter. Because if you look down at verse 28, they're brought before the high priest and before the whole Sanhedrin. And the high priest speaks up and says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And look at how the apostles respond. One of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture from a human. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, the apostles just looked at the religious establishment of their day, at the cultural leaders of their day, at the powers that be in both the arena of faith and society and told them that they were not going to follow their orders if those orders brought them into conflict with God's orders. The apostles were anything but politically correct here. And as you might expect, their response enraged the Jewish leaders, to the point that we're told in verse 33 of Acts chapter 5 that those leaders wanted to kill them. Well, they didn't kill them. 
but they decided they needed to do something that might discourage the apostles from continuing this rebellious and heretical effort in their eyes. So, instead of just threatening them here like they did back in chapter 4, we're told in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 that they beat them. This is the first instance of physical persecution in the life of the church. And you would think it would have a negative impact on the church. But it actually had the opposite. And it had the opposite impact because the first century church did not see physical abuse as a burden. They saw it as a blessing. Remember when Jesus spoke about persecution in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are you when people persecute you. And the apostles believed that. And you can see this evidence in what happens next because when persecution arose, the first century church rejoiced. How would you have reacted to enduring a beating for Christ? Would you and would I, would we have complained about the injustice Would we have whined about how we were being unfairly treated? Would we have lamented our circumstances saying, poor, poor, pitiful me? Because the apostles didn't complain. The apostles didn't whine. The apostles didn't lament. If you look at Acts chapter 5 and look at verse 41... We're told that they walked out of that interrogation room. They walked out of that beating. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. We understand rejoicing because there's a lot of it happening right now in this area because the Braves are finally back in the World Series. And they beat those horrible Dodgers of Jeremy Beecham's liking. Okay, they got, it, they got the World Series last year, so it's okay. We understand rejoicing because a lot of you stayed up late last night to rejoice. Is physical persecution something to celebrate? In the eyes of the first century church, it was. But do you know why? Do you understand why they could rejoice in this moment? It's because it confirmed their faith. It proved that they were following Christ. Because all throughout the New Testament, we're told that if you follow Christ, you're going to be persecuted. Back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, when Jesus said, Blessed are you when others persecute you on my account. He didn't say, Blessed are you if others persecute you. He used the term when. And that word implies that what follows is an expected outcome rather than a possible outcome. So in one of the Beatitudes, Jesus made it perfectly clear that believing in him would eventually result in being persecuted for him. 
You can go over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. Paul said, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That Greek term translated granted comes from the same root word for grace. And if you're familiar with the term for grace, it refers to something with which you have been gifted. So here Paul identifies two gifts. The gifts of believing in Christ and the gift of suffering for Christ. And by linking these two gifts together, Paul indicates that persecution is directly related to confession. If you're a believer in Christ, then you should automatically be a victim of persecution. You can also go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, where Paul said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That term all is inclusive. It indicates that what follows is applicable to every disciple. And the phrase will be is definitive. It indicates that what follows is certain or absolute or guaranteed. And so whether you're looking at Matthew chapter 5, Philippians chapter 1, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, all of those passages are telling us that if you're a believer, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, then persecution should be a reality in your life. And when you face persecution, that's reason to celebrate. Because it's confirming your relationship to the one who was persecuted first. It's confirming your association with the one who was crucified. Because he said, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. So here's the ultimate point I want to get to with this lesson. If persecution confirms your relationship with Christ, then what does a lack of persecution confirm? Jesus wrote some letters to some churches that are recorded in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. In the letters to those seven churches, he commended some of those churches for their perseverance in the face of persecution. Such was the case in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then if you go over to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, he writes to the church in Pergamum, and he says, You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there are some churches who are praised, who are celebrated, who are commended because they endured persecution. And then there are some churches who are informed that persecution is on the horizon. For example, the church in Smyrna was told, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
And the church in Philadelphia was told, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so there were some churches Jesus wrote to and said, hey, persecution's coming. And some, Jesus said, persecution's coming. You've been so faithful, I'm going to spare you this time. But there are two churches in that, in Revelation. Two congregations in Revelation that received no communication about persecution whatsoever. It's the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. They're not commended for their perseverance in the face of persecution. They're not informed about persecution on the horizon. Nothing is said about persecution to either one of those congregations. Why? I believe one commentator summarized it best. He said there was no persecution because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. And here's my point. Scripture repeatedly tells us that if we are following Christ, we can expect persecution. That's why I spent so much time at the start of the sermon talking about the different forms of persecution. You may not be persecuted the point that your life is at risk. Some will. Around the world, some will. But you may be persecuted with the way people treat you, ostracize you, insult you, harass you. But if you're not being persecuted, what might that say about your relationship with Christ? You see, as we assemble this morning, I think we need to be reminded that to be a follower of Christ is boldly beautiful. But if you're not bold, if you're not willing to have the courage to announce your relationship with Christ, to stand for what He stands for, then you might not ever face persecution, and that might be more telling than anything else. This morning, I encourage us to be bold for Christ, to obey no matter what the circumstances are, and to celebrate when we experience such persecution. Before we offer the invitation, join me for a word of prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly approach you today acknowledging what your son suffered and what your, your church has suffered for so many years in this world that hates your son and his people. Lord, we pray for help. We pray that you will help us be bold in the face of a society that mocks you, in the face of a society that despises you and what you stand for. Help us to have the courage to stand up, Lord. Help us to never be ashamed of who we are in you. And help us, Lord, to have the opportunity to take that stand. We love you, Lord, and it's through your Son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you're not a follower of God, if you've never made the bold proclamation that Jesus
Christ as his risen son. If you've never repented of your sins and been immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, then we invite you to make that decision today. And if you are a child of God, then we invite you to be bold. If you have any need to respond to the invitation, we encourage you to come off together.